As I mentioned, we're starting a brand new series called Stranger Things, and this series is actually a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. This is a relatively short book. There's only five chapters in this book, and so I want to encourage you to take some time over the course of this study to read through the book. Do it two, three, four times, maybe read a chapter every day over the course of the next several weeks, and get yourself familiar with the text. And it'll serve you well as we dig into it, okay? Now today, this morning, what I want us to do is, as we kind of kick off this whole series, I want to get us into a position where we can see an overview of why Peter wrote this letter. We all love to get letters, don't we? I mean, I love it when I get a letter from somebody and it's not a label, even if they signed it inside and wrote a note on a form letter. I love a letter that's hand-addressed because it says they took a couple extra seconds to, to put their own handwriting on that. And then they sent, sent it to me. Everybody loves le- I mean, most everybody loves letters. I got a letter on January the 12th, 2012. And it came from one of my really good friends, Wayne Smith, who... Uh, some of you know he was the founder of Southland Christian Church, and he was my boss for about 14 years, a little over 14 years, and uh, he's a guy I have tremendous admiration and respect for, and I have my whole life. Even now that he's gone, I still have great respect for him. And he sent me this letter because on the second Sunday that I was in this position, I was, it was my second sermon as the lead minister of Northeast Christian, he was in attendance and so he wrote me this letter to tell me how it went, okay? And so I thought it, it was hand-addressed by his hand. He typed it, or somebody typed it for him, but I know he dictated it. And so if you'll allow me, in this, at a risk of sounding a little self-serving, you'll, I hope, will understand the point at the end, okay? He says this, Dear Monty, permit me to share my thoughts relative to the service Sunday. That made me a little bit nervous when I read that, okay? He still, it still makes me nervous. He's been gone now for almost two years. So anyway, this is number one, and he he lists it, number one, the sermon, all caps, okay? Excellent. Just let that wash over you for a moment, okay? (laughs) Isn't that great? I love this letter now. It was simple yet profound, he says. Now, I think that's a compliment, Okay? The four points were good, the the content kept my attention, and when you honestly keep another minister's attention, that's very good. All right, I'll take that, right? Number two, the delivery, all caps, the delivery. You don't have to take a back seat to anyone. Oh yeah, right there. How about that, Andy Stanley? Boom, right there, okay? (laughs) Okay, I'm kidding. Thank God you have a sense of humor that is spontaneous. That's what he said. Most ministers would give their right arm for your humor and its timing. It's so natural for you that you understand its value. You could tell the audience was with you. That meant a lot to me. He goes on, and I'm not going to read the whole letter to you, but I, I wanted to share this because of these last two lines that he wrote near the end of the letter. He said, All of the above is my opinion. However, the main point of this letter is to tell you how proud I am of you. And you are right where God wants you to be. I'll tell you something. For a page and a half, he wrote all these encouraging things. And they spoke to my heart. They really were a blessing to me. Wayne was famous for writing powerful, meaningful letters. If you ever got one, you know what I'm talking about. But nothing was more powerful to me than that letter 
that he sent me. Because at that moment, you know, if there was uncertainty about how I was doing things or what I was doing, I know I wasn't perfect, but he was speaking into that void saying, hey, I have your back. I believe in you. I know God is going to use you. And I hope that's been the case. But it was a huge blessing to me when I read it. And you know what? As I was going through letters, and I have a drawer in my office that I was kind of rifling through to find a letter kind of like what Peter was sending to the churches in Asia Minor. I came across this letter, and as I read it, it ran all over me again. And it was a blessing to me all over again. We love getting letters like that, don't we? I mean, you like getting an email or text message like that that says, hey, I know you're right where you need to be. You're doing a great job. Somebody pats you on the back. Somebody loves on you. Most of us like getting letters like that, especially if it's from a loved one or, or a, a really good friend, you know, who is in your corner. Well, Peter wrote this letter, and it was a vitally important letter because this was a serious, serious time for the church. He wrote this letter to Christian brothers and sisters who were facing an incredible, challenging time because, simply because, they were Christians. So let's, let's look at verse 1, kind of kick it off, okay? Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he introduces himself. And the reason he does this is this is a scroll. And as they open it up, they'd have to unroll it all the way down to see the salutation. So he puts who they, this is a common, common thing that they did. They would put their name at the very beginning. And he tells us who he is. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Kind of like, I know him. Okay, I'm, I know him. I was one of his guys. And then he says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now there's a word that he uses right here at the beginning. He says, to God's elect. And that, that word elect has a little bit of controversy to it. And I think it demands that we have a little bit of explanation. There's a couple of words in that first verse that we want to dig into a little. But that word Peter uses needs some explanation. He refers to the people he's writing to as God's elect. Now, when it comes to this topic of election, there's basically two schools of thought. One is the school of thought called Calvinism, and the other is non-Calvinism, or what is commonly referred to as Armenianism. The key difference between these two schools of thought is the fact that Calvinism believes that election, to be elect God's elect, is unconditional. There's nothing you can do. God chose winners and losers a long time ago, and that's it. It's settled. Okay? Armenianism says that election is conditional. There are some conditions to it. Now, what does it mean that election is conditional? Well, it means that God specifies in advance the conditions a sinner must meet in order to be chosen for salvation by God. See, under the new covenant, we're no longer under the Old Testament law, we're under the new covenant, the grace of God. These conditions are clearly explained in the New Testament. Their faith in Jesus, this has to be there. If you're going to be chosen for salvation, you have to have faith in Jesus, confession, repentance, and baptism. These acts are decisions we must make in order to be chosen by God for salvation. And Peter is writing to a group of people who obviously have taken action on these conditions. He calls them God's elect. 
He goes on, he says, Peter, he introduces himself, an apostle of God, to God's elect. These are people who are saved. These are people who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Scattered throughout the provinces. And then he lists the provinces of Asia Minor. These people, God called his elect, are also called exiles, or the King James uses the word strangers. You didn't know that, did you? The Bible actually refers to us as strangers. It means resident aliens or sojourners. These are people who don't live here, but they're here. They live here, but they're not here. They're not from here. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.11, he calls his readers strangers and pilgrims. Reminds me of John Wayne. Hey there, pilgrim. I think it's funny. Now, it has nothing to do with the sermon. But the idea is that they were different. They're different. They're not from around here. So different that it's as if they're from another country or another culture. Now, why were they different? Well, Paul answers that in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christians' permanent home is not this earth. We're just visiting. We're just passing through. And because Christians are strangers in this world, we are considered to be strange in the eyes of the world a lot of the time. They look at us and they go, I don't get you. And Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 4, 4. He says, they, he's talking about the world, the people around the Christians. He said, they are surprised that you do not join, in, join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Think about that. The stranger things that the world sees are our beliefs and our behaviors, and they don't get it. They don't understand, why do you do that? Why would a bunch of people show up on a rainy day? Incidentally, kudos to you for bearing out through hurricane, the remnants of Hurricane Nate. Good job. Good job. People look at that and they go, why would you do that? It's weird. They don't understand. They think we're crazy. They don't understand why Christians live the way that they live when they live like Jesus. They don't get that. So here's the, here's the question. The first question I want to ask you is, as a, question, as, a, as a Christian, excuse me, do you ever feel strange? Do you ever feel like you don't fit in this world? Do you ever feel like you're so different from this world? Sometimes you feel like you're going upstream. Do you ever feel that way? There are numerous examples throughout history of how the early church was seen to be strange. Here are some of what the world saw as stranger things about the church. The church was, in fact, the, the fact about the church was it was very countercultural. Even from its very beginning, it's consisted to be that way, continued to be that way for the last 2,000 years. Let me give you a couple examples. First of all, Christians are generous to the poor. They're generous to the poor. Justin Martyr, who wrote in uh, 200 B.C., that's when he lived, 200 B.C., writes about how Christians cared for the poor. He tries to explain it. This is what he said. We who used to value acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people, and pray for our enemies. 
The early church was committed to caring for others who had genuine needs. Often they were more concerned about others than they were themselves. And the world doesn't understand that. Why would you give your money away to someone like that? Why would you do that? Well, there's a second reason why uh, the world thought the early church was kind of strange. The second stranger thing about the church was Christians love their enemies. They love their enemies. And a part of, I think, where this comes from is the words of Jesus himself. He gave this directive in Matthew 5, 44. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This was significant to the early church. I mean, you think about it. The very fact that Christians were willing to suffer unspeakable horrors and even die rather than disown their God was, next to their lifestyle, their single most effective evangelistic tool. Their willingness to die. It meant a lot. It gave a lot of credibility to their message. But here's the, here's the stranger thing. Few, if any, Roman citizens would ever have died for one of their Roman gods. So when Christians were dying for the cause of Christ, it was a head-scratcher to the Romans. They didn't get it. There had to be some substance to Christianity if it meant so much to those who practiced it. In fact, you know the Greek word for witness is where we get our English word martyr. Because when Christians were able to witness or testify about Jesus, oftentimes it was so dangerous it could lead to their actual death. The early church loved their enemies to the point that they would risk sharing Jesus with them, even if it meant that they could die. They were willing to risk telling them about Jesus even if they, could, they knew that they might turn them in. But they didn't want them to miss out on the forgiveness and the love of God. They didn't want them to miss out on the chance to spend eternity with them in heaven. It could have cost them their life. That was a real head-scratcher to the Romans. They didn't get it. The Greeks, they didn't get it. It was strange. Well, there was a third thing about the church... That was strange. The third stranger thing about the early church was they, Christians, cared for the sick. They cared about the sick. In, in fact, in 250 A.D. through 270 A.D., for 20 years, there was a terrible plague. Probably it was either measles or smallpox. People aren't positive. But it devastated the Roman Empire. It was so bad that at the height of this plague, which became known as the Plague of Scipion, The people, there were 5,000 people who were dying every single day in the city of Rome alone. 5,000, can you imagine? This plague coincided with the first empire-wide persecution of Christians under Emperor Decius. And not surprising, Decius and other enemies of the church blamed Christians for the plague. They blamed the Christians for the plague. Now, this is crazy. In fact, this claim was undermined by two very significant facts. The first one was, Christians were dying just like everybody else was. That was pretty common. But uncommon was that unlike everybody else, the Christians cared for victims of the plague, even their pagan neighbors. 
And this wasn't new. Christians had done the same thing a century earlier to the Antonine Plague. Author Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, wrote, Christians stayed in the afflicted cities when pagan leaders, including physicians, fled. It was the church that was staying, and they were taking care of the sick, even in the event that they might get sick themselves. Why did they do this? Jesus made it crystal clear in Matthew, the 25th chapter. I love this part of, his, uh, of the book of Matthew. He said, I, I was sick and you looked after me. And they asked, when did we see you sick? And he said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The church continues to go to places all around the world to provide care when others are leaving. So proud of Chal Knox. He's here. Chal's just taking a job as the director of a ministry in Central America, right? Uh, called Lemonade. It's not pronounced Lemonade, but that's the way uh, us Americans pronounce it. But he's going to be—he's going into a region that there is a lot of need and a lot of hurting people. And I'm so proud of him. I know God has prepared him for this. I'm excited about it. There's another opportunity I want to tell you about. Some of you may, it may, not, it may not speak to 99.8% of us, but for the 0.2%, there is a team that's going into Nepal, southern Nepal, on January the 20th through February the 3rd of this next year. And this is going to be a medical team that's going to be focusing on unreached villages that have been hit really hard by flooding during the monsoon season. A lot of loss of life. We haven't heard much about it here in the States because of the hurricanes and all the other trauma that we've, we've seen happening here. But there's a team going, and there's also a ministry team. If you're not a medically oriented person, they're going to be working side by side with the medical team. If you're interested in that, this strikes a chord with you contact me. I'd love to share more information with you. There are all of these times where the church is going in when a lot of times the world has kind of washed their hands of it. Sometimes they're even leaving. Clearly, Christians have values that are very different from those in the world around them. And this gives the opportunity both to witness to those folks, but also it opens the door for persecution and for suffering. We'll discover in this letter that some of the readers were experiencing suffering because of the, the different lifestyle that they were living as they were following after Jesus. Now these Christians were scattered, just for a full ex, ex, explanation of verse 1, they were scattered in five different parts of the Roman Empire known as Northern Asia Minor. It's what we call modern Turkey, okay? And what they did is, it's listed Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, Galatia, Bithynia in the... Uh, Excuse me, Pontius, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia. Pontius, Galatia. Yeah, see, I knew. No one corrected me, but I knew it wasn't right. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And the reason that's important is some people think that that is the order that the letter was going to be delivered. We don't know that for sure. But we know that these were the people who Peter was writing to. He was writing to them. There were Jews at Pentecost, which was the birth of the church. If you want to read about this, you can read Acts chapter 2 and following. And you'll find that there were Jews who actually came to Christ. They were baptized into Jesus' name at Pentecost. 
and they were from Cappadocia and Pontus. And a lot of scholars believe that when the persecutions broke out in Jerusalem, they went back to their homelands and they took the gospel with them. They started churches there and they, they actually influenced their neighbors in that region. So now the gospel is all through northern Asia Minor. Now, the big question then is, why was this so important for Peter to write a letter to this region? Well, there are some key reasons why Peter wrote this letter to Christians in Asia Minor. And the message that he wrote still resonates in the hearts of people who find themselves face-to-face with persecution and suffering today. 2,000 years later, the message is still relevant So, I don't know where you are in the journey of life. Things may be cruising right along for you spiritually. Everything is lining up. All the lights are green. Everything is perfect. And you know what? God bless you. But pay attention to this study because life won't always be like that. And if you walk like Jesus did, there are going to be people who push back against that. Some of you in this room, you feel like you're going upstream all the time. The place where you work, they don't respect the fact that you're a Christian. Or maybe you're in a marriage or you're in a relationship or you're part of a family where you're the only believer. The people are pushing against that. You may find yourself, maybe not in persecution, but you feel like you are on the short end of the stick a lot of the time because of Jesus. This letter was written for you. So, let's jump into this. What are these reasons? Why Why did Peter write this letter? The first of these reasons is, I think he wrote it because believers were going through suffering and persecution. That's the the big issue. We'll get it right out there. He wanted to address the reality of this struggle. Fifteen different times in this letter, he brings up suffering. And he uses eight different Greek words to describe it. He is covering the entire issue in this letter. Some of these Christians were suffering because they were living godly lives and they were doing good and they were doing right. Others suffered because they openly identified with the name of Jesus. People knew they were Christians and that was it. So Paul wrote to encourage them to be witnesses to those who were persecuting them and also to remember that when they are faithfully walking through this, it's going to lead to glorifying God. So don't quit. Peter also points out that Jesus is our model for how to respond to suffering. Listen to what he writes in chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he's talking about Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter wanted the people who were in the churches of Asia Minor to have a context for why this persecution was happening to the church, why they were experiencing it. And he wanted them to have reasons not to quit, to see the bigger picture here and not quit, because quitting is definitely an option. It was definitely an option. Well, Peter had another important reason for writing, and that was to be prepared for the fiery trial that was about to begin. Now, what's he talking about? Well, in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. King James says, fiery trial. I like that term. That has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, hey, don't be surprised 
when this bomb goes off in your world. Don't be surprised when the roof caves in on you, so to speak. Peter knew that a fiery trial was about to begin an official persecution from the Roman Empire. You see, it took the Romans a little while to figure out who these Christians were. When they first started, when the church first began in Jerusalem, it looked like it was just a subset or a sect of the Jewish traditional, the traditional Jewish faith. They, the first Christians were Jews, and they met together in Jewish precincts. So the Roman government just took it that this was part of the Jewish faith. So they didn't have to take any official action because, uh, against the Christians because they thought they were just part of the Jewish faith, and that was approved and accepted. But when they figured out it was clear that Christianity was not a sanctioned part of Judaism, Rome then took official steps. And they started to really bring the hammer down on the church. Paul wrote this letter while he was in Rome, most scholars believe, sometime around A.D. 62 to 64. Peter was most likely still in Rome when the great persecution, this fiery trial, was unleashed under Emperor Nero. Now, Nero was, to say mildly, he was a deranged human being. He blamed the fire of Rome in July of 64 that, that wiped out a huge section of the city. Most scholars believed he started it, but he blamed it on Christians. He made them the scapegoat, which meant everybody a part of the Roman Empire hated Christians. Nero introduced persecutions of Christians first at a local level, and then it spread. He introduced official persecution on the church and other emperors copied his example in the years that would follow. And Peter wanted to prepare the churches to stand strong in the face of these persecutions. Peter also wanted to remind his readers that suffering as a Christian should not be strange to you. It's to be expected. Now why do we say that? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Peter reminds the Christians in Asia Minor that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You're not alone in this. There's people all around the world. And then Paul summed it up this way, his entire ministry, when he said, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He always thought that death would be part of it. And it was. It was. You see, Peter most likely was in Rome when the persecution started. And history tells us that Nero had him executed. He also had the Apostle Paul killed. It was part of it. The phrase that he uses there, the fiery trial, the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. That phrase, it reminds the reader of Peter's previous reference to fire and the idea of testing that we read in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where suffering is compared to testing gold by fire. The fires of persecution are a trial for our faith. They're a testing of our faith. It reminded me of uh, playing high school football and the two-a-day practices that we had in August in Iowa, a lot of humidity, and two-a-days were this. We had a two-hour practice in the morning, 
And we had a two-hour practice in the afternoon. And the idea was the coaches wanted to see what we were made of. I mean, they put us through all kinds of drills, all kinds of, all kinds of uh, calisthenics, exercise, all that kind of stuff, to see what we were made of. And our coach would say, the work you do in August, excuse me, <coughs> will prepare you for the fourth quarter later in the season. He didn't sound like that, but I thought that was a cool coach sound, you know. He knew that these practices would make us stronger. These practices tested, they made it, they revealed what we were made of and where we needed to work and where we needed to get stronger. They tested us to, to make us better and better prepare us for the future season coming. Peter points out that these trials purify our faith and they make it stronger. And he knew they needed this reminder or there was a real possibility they would quit. Well, there's a third reason And that was Peter wrote to encourage Christians. Just in the general sense, he wanted to encourage them in the face of all that they were facing. In 1 Peter 5.12, we read, right at the end of the letter, he kind of tips his hand as to why he wrote this. He said, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in it. This letter was an encouragement not to quit. God's grace is... His generous favor to undeserving sinners and needy saints. And when we depend on God's grace, we can endure suffering and we can actually turn trials into victories. So what is this grace, God's grace, what does it look like? Let me give you a picture of it. And let me show you why we need to stand fast in it. First of all, it is God's grace that saves us. Nothing else, just His grace Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That is grace, my friends. It is the source of our salvation. And Peter says, stand in it. Stand in that grace. There's another part of this picture God's grace, is, God's grace gives us strength in times of trial. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said, he, but he, he's talking about God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is God's grace, giving you strength when you face trials. Stand in it. And there's another part of this picture about God's grace. God's grace enables us to serve God in spite of difficulties. In spite of difficulties. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And the grace that he gave me was not without effect. On the contrary, I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Although it was not really my own doing. But God's grace working with me. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. Giving you strength to serve in spite of difficulties. Stand in that grace, Peter says. And the last part of that picture, whatever begins with God's grace will always lead to glory. Always. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 84. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will be withheld from them that walk uprightly. You know, the theme of suffering runs throughout this letter. And one of the encouragements that Paul gives Christians who are suffering 
is the assurance that their suffering will one day be transformed into glory for God. And Peter says, that's the kind of grace that you should stand fast in. You know, every Christian strives to be like Jesus, or at least they should. But here's the rub. When you live like Jesus, you will eventually face some challenges. Maybe even suffering. Maybe even persecution. This letter will encourage you to keep living like Jesus. Don't quit. Some of you walked in here and you were on the, you're on the cusp of that. You're thinking about it's not really worth it. Don't quit. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. He knows what he's talking about. Let him speak the truth into your heart and into your soul. Whatever you do, don't quit. Whatever you're facing, don't quit. Stand fast in the grace of God. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for your love for us. And I'm so grateful, God, for the way in which you've worked in our lives. We know that when we live for you, when we care for the poor and the sick, and we love our enemies, and we tell other people about you and your love for them, we're living like that. We open ourselves up to face suffering. We open ourselves up to persecution. Lord, will you prepare us to face those trials? Will you prepare us to face those tests? Help us to see the glory in our faithfulness that you'll receive. God, encourage us to never quit living for you. Help us, God, never quit witnessing for you. We know there's somebody in our sphere of influence who doesn't know you, and we're We may be afraid to talk to them about you because of maybe a reprisal or maybe a pushback or maybe even they'll reject us or make fun of us. God, give us courage to stand and be that voice for you. Let them know about the love you have for them and what you mean to us. Jesus, you came, and the reason that we can keep going on is because of you. You set the example of how to manage it, but you also open a door for us to have our sins forgiven. And over the next few moments as we take communion, we're going to focus on that sacrifice you gave. It is so vitally important for us to, as a sustaining force in our lives to, to keep going forward is to remember the cross, remember what you did there. So as we take this piece of bread and this cup of juice that just represent your body and blood that was given as a sacrifice for us. May we reflect with great, with hearts filled with great gratitude. Lord, the sacrifice that washes away our sins when we put our faith in you. We are so thankful, God, for that. We praise you in Jesus' name.